Hi, everyone. Welcome to This Much I Know, the Seed Camp podcast with me, your host, Carlos Espinal, bringing you the inside story from founders, investors, and leading tech voices. Tune in to hear from the people who built businesses and products, scaled globally, failed fantastically, and learned massively. Today's podcast is brought to you in collaboration with Qualcomm. Today, we are going to be talking about intellectual property rights, and I have with me two really knowledgeable people in this space. We have Neil, uh, who is counsel at uh, Jagshaw Baker, and we have Matt, who is from Legit Patents. So each one of them is going to walk through what it is that their company does and how it helps startups in this space. Maybe we kick off with you, Neil, since you're in the room with me. Sure. Yeah, so you said my name is Neil Miller. I'm a partner in the commercial and intellectual property team at Jagshaw Baker. Jagshaw Baker is a strategic law firm based in London, um, focused on advising uh, investors, uh, entrepreneurs and companies in uh, the UK and European tech ecosystem, basically very much focused on uh, investing in and exploiting or helping companies to exploit intellectual property um, across all types of technology. Prior to joining Jagshaw Baker, I've spent a lot of time in-house. Most recently, I was six years at SoundCloud, where I was general counsel there running their legal function. So I've kind of seen um, seen companies from both sides, both from, from kind of internally, uh, what it takes to, to grow and scale a company, and also now helping as an external advisor. Matt? Uh, hi, I'm Matt Osman. Uh, I'm a recovering attorney, which is the lawyer that everyone, at least the joke that everyone says uh, when they used to be a lawyer. Uh, so I started life as, as a barrister in the UK, um, uh, but then moved into, into startup life, um, co-founded a company called Legit Patents, which I'm the CEO of. Um, uh, we're based in Boston, and we use artificial intelligence to automate the patent application process. So we build software specifically for uh, inventors and researchers, rather than necessarily their attorneys, um, to be able to go through the kind of the invention disclosure and, and the provisional patent application drafting process, um, helped by AI, um, and to do that, um, you know, at scale. Um, so that's that's what we do. Excellent. All right. So we're going to start this topic with a little bit of sort of the the challenges that startups have in this space. Uh, Neil, you work with a lot of startups. And you were at SoundCloud, so you definitely dealt with a lot of difficulties in in artists' rights when mm-hmm. uh, when that company was starting out. Walk us through what the typical pitfalls that startups deal with today when it comes to this space. So I think I mean there's a number of things that just get more complicated to fix if you don't fix them early on. So I think getting the company set up in the right way to begin with, making sure you understand your cap table making sure you keep track of all the options you've granted and make sure that your IP is in the right place. I think those are fundamental things that, that any startup needs to um, needs to get right early on because, as I said, it gets an awful lot more tricky to, um, to unpick later on. Then I think there's just basically an ongoing um, responsibility on companies just to make sure they stay on, stop, stay on top of certain things. I think, it, you know, a big one is, or increasingly big one, is open source, just making sure that the, the, the company is keeping track of which open source libraries they're using, the licenses in which they're using those codes and how those codes are being utilized and, and if at all, distributed. Um, so all of those are kind of foundational elements. Beyond that, it really depends on the, the business that the company is in. I think SoundCloud was very much in the music business, and the music business has its own quirks. Um, it's hugely complex, and you know, SoundCloud as a, as a platform is navigating 
Um, some very difficult issues around uh, intermediary liability and at the same time during my tenure there trying to convert into a subscription streaming service so negotiating licenses with, with record companies and publishers and trying to balance both of those at the same time. That's obviously very specific to, to that particular business. Excellent. Matt, you deal with another element of it, which is patent patent registration. What experience can you share with how startups have led the, the, the way here? Yeah, so um, acquiring uh, intellectual property in, in, a, in a kind of a smart way can be a pretty expensive endeavor for startups currently. Um, and, uh, you know, unfortunately, quite a few companies, especially in, in the sort of software startup space, in the wake of um, recent judicial decisions in the U.S. have been kind of moving away from, from getting patents. So there was a decision called the Alice decision, which made it much harder to get um, patents on, on software and business methods. Um, that's beginning to kind of tip back the other way now. About half patents um, granted in the, in the U.S. Uh, last year were, were actually in the kind of the software space, despite those, um, those headwinds. Um, proper intellectual property protection, kind of starting early, um, especially in the freedom to operate um, realm. So making sure that you're not going to infringe on someone else's patent is, is a key part of kind of good housekeeping for any startup. Um, and especially, I mean, I would say this using tools like ours, um, you know, it can be a, a pretty cost effective way for startups to begin to build out an IP portfolio, which will make them potentially a more attractive acquisition target, um, may make it easier to, to raise money, um, you know, the number of patents that a particular startup has in their portfolio is quite often a factor in, um, you know, the, the calculus being performed by VCs, um, especially in kind of later funding rounds. And it's certainly a factor in the way that, um, you know, large traditional acquirers of, of tech startups um, view valuation. So Google has a, you know, as part of their, their calculation, they will add, you know, X million dollars per patent to your, to your, to your exit. Um, so starting, the process of kind of cataloging and auditing inventions that look like they might be patentable is something that should be done kind of as soon as possible. Um, and there are some fairly inexpensive options to kind of claim, um, basically plant a flag in the ground. So using provisional patent applications rather than full applications is, is, is one method of doing that. I mean, that's just in the, in the, in the patent space. Um, we'd like to look at one, you know, at some point in to, to um, move into things like copyright trademarks. Um, but, but, you know, that's, that's just patents, which is kind of where my uh, expertise is. Okay. So the interesting thing is that on the one side, Matt, you're dealing with the automation of something that's traditionally been quite labor, uh, intensive from a legal point of view. And Neil, you're in effect kind of part of that legacy of, of helping companies navigate that but with manpower rather than mm -hmm. through machine power. So what does the future of this space look like? Let's just take it to the 10-year ten, ten mark and say, are we looking at a complete rewrite of legal services dealing with copywriting, patents, trademarks? Are we relying on technologies like blockchain to basically keep an audit of all these things? And are we looking at the repurposing of uh, people like you, Neil, into the curation or maybe the management of of those digital manifestations of labor versus having to do the actual search identification conflict resolution what what does yeah. the future bring 
Yeah. I mean, I think there's there's no doubt in my mind that um, that AI has a huge role to play. AI specifically has a huge role to play in the future of, of legal services for exactly the, the the purposes that Matt's outlined with respect to patents. So that incredibly labour intensive, some would say mundane effort of kind of going through the state of the art in patent specifically, going through disclosure or discovery and litigation, proofreading documents. I think all of that can be automated to a greater or lesser extent. I mean, there's always going to be how you interpret those results and certain elements of, of legal practice that are going to always need some kind of human intervention. But, you know, there are a lot of law firms making a lot of money doing e-disclosure. And to the extent that can be automated by AI, I think it, it has the potential to so, be hugely disruptive. So walk me through the human, because I, I, I'm going to see Matt's yeah. tempted to want to like <laughs> say it's all going to be disrupted, right? Because that's what Legit Pants is doing. But, but before you so, jump in there, Matt, you know, <laughs> walk me through like what you think like 10 years from now, what will people with your level of experience in the sector really be focusing the energy on? So, you know, I think there's always going to be a lot that is never going to be black and white. It's going to be judgment calls. It's going to be risk analysis. It's going to be risk assessment. And I think there are certain branches of the law where, you know, let's take um, family law, right, which requires a level of empathy that you're not going to get from, from AI. So I think, you know, I'm not totally saying that um, the, you know, the entire legal profession is going to be redundant within 10 years. I think there's going to be an element that is always going to require some human intervention. But I think, as I said, for those hugely um, mechanical tasks of churning through documents, then, then AI has enormous potential to disrupt. So I, I, would, I kind of broadly agree with that. What I would add is that I think the lawyer of the future in sort of 10 years' time is going to look much closer to a kind of a combination of a strategic advisor an account manager, and then also like someone in charge of customer support. And quite a lot of their job will be uh, interpreting and packaging the results that are produced by software. So the traditional model is that a huge amount of legal computation um, is performed by associates and paralegals, especially the kind of the mechanical stuff. And then the partner will, you know, if they're a rainmaker, they're bringing in a business in billable hours, but they're also interpreting um, the results that are coming back from the associate work and presented them to a client in a particular way. And my view is that there'll be a, a real thinning out of, of, of that associate base. I think a lot of law firms' leverage ratios are going to come under enormous pressure. Um, I think that the business models of law firms are going to change hugely. One of the problems, of course, is there's a, a great Richard Susskind line, which is that um, it's really hard to tell a room of multi-millionaires that their business model is broken. Um, and that's kind of how I feel about dealing with um, with law firms. Um, it's certainly in the patent space. We came to the view that um, the human you should really be kind of building software for uh, and trying to optimize for, um, the human you want to keep in the loop is actually the inventor rather than the researcher. Um, because actually the current uh, methodologies behind patent drafting, um, what happens is, is the inventor is co-opted into the process to perform some of the patent match, pattern matching. So uh, an attorney who will, if they're in um, intellectual property, they'll tend to have a technical degree, but they won't be doing it day in, day out. They won't know, you know the particularities of you know, hidden Markov processes as applied in this particular use case. They might not understand in the ins and outs of Raman spectroscopy. So what they'll do is they will loop in the inventor or the researcher and, and kind of get them to perform an audit of whether something exists already in the art. Um, and so what we decide to do is to actually build software specifically for the inventors and the researchers to try and capture some of that human expertise 
um, because we think that you can get really, really interesting results by like augmenting inventive processes rather than necessarily attorney processes in the particularly the patent case. I think as we build out um, you know, more and more pieces of software, not just in, in, in intellectual property, but also in other legal verticals, that, that, might, be, that might be different. But in the patent case, um, the human that we think you, know, you need to be building for is actually the people who, who are kind of in the weeds with this every day. Um, but as to kind of what the future looks like 10 years from now, um, I think that if I were going to law school, I would... Um, make sure that I was taking some coding courses um, right now. In fact, you're seeing there's a trend. I mean, Georgetown Law is doing it. Harvard Law School just down the road here um, is starting to kind of do crossover classes with, with uh, computer science class, uh, computer science um, department. Stanford's had their program Codex for a while. Um, and it's slightly worrying to me from a kind of a UK versus US context um, as to the potential for you, the UK legal system to be very forward thinking in some areas, but slightly um, behind the times in others, which is that, you know, the US law schools are slightly waking up to the fact that, um, you know, the lawyer of the future might be closer to a software engineer than they might expect now. You, you kind of might have legal engineering as a, as a, as a new field. Um, but you know, I, you go ahead. Sorry, I was going to say, I think that, I think that applies equally to, to most professional services. Um, businesses. I, I just to pick up on a point you, you, you made previously, Matt. I would completely agree with you that the um, that the business model of the law firm is is out of date. Um, it completely. Having been you know a purchaser of legal services for many years, um, you know I'm very well aware of that, and I think the business model needs to change, and it will be disrupted by technology. If it's not going to happen from the inside, it's going to happen externally in the way that all good disruption is. Um, and I think also. The, the the way the business model, the way the provision of legal services has evolved over the last 10 years, you know, we're seeing this change um, already with business process outsourcing and, and various labor intensive processes being offshored to cheaper jurisdictions. Um, you know, I think AI and technology generally is, is going to accelerate a process that's already been underway for some time. Yeah, because technology is the cheapest jurisdiction of all. Correct. Right. Indeed. Well, yeah. Talking about jurisdictions, you know, Neil, you, you've you have a wealth of experience, you know, you came into Jackshaw Baker from uh, the time that you spent in SoundCloud, but, you know, you had other roles as well, you know, with large media companies. And with that experience comes access to a lot of the people who are driving both policy and also uh, have awareness of how partnerships and commercial agreements can change how patents, uh, trademarks and, and copyright and even just uh, uh, partnerships work. Mm -hmm. So maybe if, we, if we've if we already agreed that the 10 years from now, there'll be like a subdivision of the coding lawyer, um, what is the game gonna look like 10 years from now? What is the context that we will be playing in? And from what you're, you've seen and the evolution of both the regulation and corporate relationships, what do you think the context in which this game is gonna be played in is gonna look like 10 years from now? Yes, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting question. I wish I knew for sure I could put money on it. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I think access to information is going to be far easier even than it is now for the reasons we've, we've just outlined. You're going to be able to actually get information, get preliminary decisions, you know, at the, at the tap of a few keys, the click of a mouse. 
um, a lot of those decisions are probably going to be preempted for you. And I think the role of the lawyer, the role of any professional services and pro any professional, um, the role of most, most most business people is to will be to synthesize that information and make decisions based upon it. Um, it's kind of what they do today, but it'll happen much much quicker. So I think you know we, we will be seeing decisions making decision making happening more quickly. We'll see businesses evolving much more quickly. Hmm. I think we also might see a shift. Um, you know, more broadly in legal services from the law as like an emergency room. The lawyer is someone you talk to when something's gone terribly wrong as to something much more proactive. Um, so kind of preventative rather than, 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 than at the point of crisis. Um, and actually having lawyers looped in earlier uh, to, the, to the kind of business processes to make sure that, you know, the legal department isn't viewed so much as a cost center anymore, but can actually be, can it be a profit center in, in intellectual property? Because I think that's all change in legal services, in my view, is going to come from the client side. Um, if you bill by the hour, you have no incentive to buy a productivity tool. Um, and, you know, the, the, the partnership structure is such that um, you have no continuity of ownership. So, you know, you're 55, you're, you know, uh, a profit partner, an equity partner at Alan and Overy, you know, beyond the warm feeling it might give you to see Alan and Overy thrive in, in 20 years time, you're not passing your partnership to your, to your children. Once you leave your, your rights over, over the profit pool kind of dissipate. Um, and so it leads to short termism, uh, in my view. Um, well, Matt, it, it sounds like you definitely have it against law firms, which is fine, considering the nature of your stuff. But I think, I think um, you know, whilst it's very tempting to go down that path with Neil here to, to, to opine on, I think one of the things that, you know, is interesting from the both angles that you have to the question is how it, how it relates to big questions like evolving uh, regulatory uh, initiatives in this space and two, geopolitical pressures on this, you know, like how how intellectual property warfare shapes commerce. So, for example, um, pressure on China or other locations in how they deal with intellectual property and how does that play with um, partnerships or commercial agreements in other parts of the world where they feel like maybe there is uh, um, jeopardy on, on that. Mm. So maybe you both of you can comment on how when you have different economies that are coming up, where those don't necessarily sync up like for like with sort of well-known uh, trademark patent or copyright processes, how you see the role of the lawyer and the, the role of a startup in legal tech navigating that and whether there's still a need for these two things to work together and what are the key changes in the next 10 years when it comes to those two, two things? Yeah, well, I, mean, I think intellectual property has always been a strong enabler of business and I think this, 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 there seems to be, certainly in my experience, when dealing with China, for example, huge economy, huge potential, huge market of consumers, but a sense that if you go into China, you it's a cost of doing business that your product is going to be counterfeited or is going to be copied or you're going to lose control of your intellectual property rights and it's going to be very difficult to enforce. If that wasn't China, if it wasn't such a big market, maybe they would be less attractive for driving people into China despite all of those risks. So I think, you know, in order to... Uh, for markets markets that aren't China that are emerging, you know, I think it's important that they demonstrate a commitment to enabling innovative businesses to protect and enforce their IP rights in order to be effectively taken seriously. 
but, but let's let's keep on pushing on that because I think you've just stated what we all kind of understand and believe to be true, but we need to see that evolve and we need to see that evolve in the context of companies like legit patents mm-hmm. and also with an increasing need to further integrate regimes of intellectual property management. So what do you, where do you reckon the steam valve is going to come from? Is it going to be from a continued acceptance of IP laws? Is it going to come from, um, I don't know, I'm making this up as I go along guys. So like blockchain solving the problem and everyone subscribes to the same, you know, uh, blockchain or, or what is it? I mean, where do you think this is going to, how is this going to be resolved and what's the future of legal services across borders going to look like? So, well, I, th- I think legal services across borders is always tricky because there are different rules in different countries. So there's always a territorial element to it. You, know, you can't apply the same set of rules everywhere. I think blockchain is an interesting um, technology and we can maybe talk about that a little bit later. I mean, to to answer your direct question, I think this has to come from two two sides. right? So there has to be a supranational regulatory angle to it, which is a continuation of what's been happening for many years through WIPO, through other transnational organizations, getting uh, different states to agree to respect reciprocal rights when it comes to intellectual property. Secondarily, I think businesses like Matt's have a huge role to play in reducing the cost of enforcing um, intellectual property rights in different territories cross-border. So understanding what your rights are and actually giving these businesses a foundation to, to, to enforce the rights in a very cost-effective way. I mean, on your day-to-day, how do you help companies with, with uh, violations somewhere else? That they have, you know, contracted out to. I mean, we're, because we're a UK law firm, we're, we're not really in a position to help enforce. So we, we have a network of international law firms that we work with, so we refer them to somebody we trust. But at the end of the day, these things have to be handled locally. Okay, so you wouldn't, you wouldn't even be handholding the client through this. Oh, no, we would. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we maintain that relationship. Yeah. Okay. I mean, the, the the reason I was asking this question is, you know, we've all agreed on. Internet protocol, you know, we've all agreed that every computer around the world is going to be using IP addresses and that's how we're going to communicate. And I'm, I'm curious as to whether, Matt, you think that some of these issues that have plagued us for years are going to be solved through technology by you indexing every single equivalent of what you've done so far in the U.S. and then just creating such a compelling solution that you're basically just the conduit to, to sort of eliminate all that noise. Yeah, so I mean, I think there are um, there are some very very interesting technological solutions to cross border filing. Um, I mean, that, that we're cooking up at the moment. Um, one of the things I'm just going to kind of synthesize a, a few points that have been made um, before is that we are at risk of entering into an IP regime arms race. Um, intellectual property is quite often incorrectly, in my view, not considered property. Um, right, it's, it's like real estate. Um, you have a piece of paper, like a deed on a house, that tells you this is what I own. And in a patent, it's what the claims say. The claims tell you what the borders of the house are that you own. Um, and you know, in the same way that location will determine how much your real estate is worth, and you know, to what extent your rights can be enforced, we're seeing the same thing in intellectual property. So, um, you know, it used to be the case that, at least in patents, I. I, I, I uh, except that actually this might not be the case in, in, in copyright and trademark. But in patents, it used to be the case that um, China, you know, it wasn't worth the 
the, the paper it, it might have not been written on um, getting patented in China. But now you're seeing a trend in, um, you know, at a, at a, a party level in China to invest heavily in um, IP enforcement and a really um, a, a court system that can, can handle a huge amount of volume. So in the, in, there are 605,000 utility um, patent uh, applications every year in the US. There are now over a million in China. Um, the Chinese government has been investing a huge amount in training judges um, and building up IP specialist courts, similar to the, to the kind of the um, specialist business courts that Delaware has in the US, um, to make sure that the value of their intellectual real estate um, goes up. Uh, and so, I, so one point is that I think the US needs to be very careful as to other jurisdictions that they're not left behind in terms of the, the kind of the quality of intellectual property that is that is protected in that particular jurisdiction. Um, the other point is that I think that there are some really interesting applications in blockchain, for example, about tracking um, potential infringement on someone's intellectual property. You could have automatic settlement um, uh, in a decentralized way if, if you if you um, infringe on someone's intellectual property. I think that's a really, really interesting uh, avenue to explore. Um, but I do think I'm, I'm very bullish always on machine intelligence's ability to um, reduce complexity, um, especially when it comes to kind of cross-border issues. It, we initially started the company in, in actually the tax space. Um, and one of the things we spent a huge amount of time in was looking at how you would harmonize cross-border tax tax regimes. And it's something that we plan to do for, for intellectual property as well, but initially just patents. Mm. Okay. Wanted to jump back to you, Neil, with, with some of the things that you've done before. You know, you, you were at MTV and CBS and a lot of these name brand companies. And I don't know if you can, maybe you can't, but if you can, maybe you can share a, a, a war story, a horror story of where you helped <laughs> and you helped resolve something and maybe had helped shed some light onto the distinction between what a machine might be able to do as a process thing that eliminates costs versus what a experienced lawyer can do in terms of resolving an issue. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of the issues that we had to deal with when I was at, at SoundCloud involved, um, involved users uploading infringing music content. <clears throat> which involve, you know, and, and SoundCloud invested a lot of time and effort and money and people and resources in audio fingerprinting to try and minimize that risk. Nevertheless, you know, the technology is only so good. No technology is 100% effective and there were things that kind of crept through the, the filter and then had to be resolved. So it was basically a two-line, two-stage approach. So we had the technology that was blocking the vast majority of the infringing uploads. Stuff got through, then got reported for takedown and a judgment call had to be made on whether or not that content that had got through needed to be taken down. So the machine was fantastic at, at, at blocking the vast majority of, 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 of what went through, uh, sorry, what was uploaded, but it still needed that human element. It wasn't enough to rely purely on the, on the technology. Hmm. And then your job would be to either reduce the anger from artists or? Yeah, so my job, um, the job of my team and more broadly, the, the, we had a community operations team, a copyright team specifically at SoundCloud that was 100% uh, focused on dealing with these notices and takedowns. Their job was basically to, to, to look at the content complained of and make a decision as to whether or not, yes, it was what it said it was and it was infringing and the, the person who reported it for removal had the right to take it down or whether there were grounds on which it should, it should remain up. 
Was there was there any specific story that maybe you can share or not, or you <laughs> ambiguate where, you know, it was that judgment call that really saved the day? Well, there were lots of cases where there was no judgment call to be made. We just had to act super quick with leaks, for example. There were a lot of high, well, a lot. There's a couple of instances of very high profile leaks, where, which happened over the weekend or in the middle of the night, where we had to mobilize people and, and remove content very, very quickly. Um, in terms of saving the day, I mean, there were a lot of judgment calls needed to be made where very high profile accounts, so artist accounts, for example, would be reported, have content removed, even though it had been posted with the approval of the artist, and maybe the publisher had complained or somebody else had complained, and the whole account was risk as a risk of being taken down. Um, there was a couple that did get removed, um, which were reported in the press, very high profile DJ accounts, for example. Um, and we then had to make a judgment call about whether or not to reinstate, whether the relationship with the artist or whether there were grounds on which we could get those those strikes effectively revoked by speaking to the right people and and keep the account live. Okay, so a lot of relationship management. A lot of relationship like. management, yeah. And then, Matt, maybe the same question for you is maybe you can share a war story where either your previous function or within legit patents, you basically took down the time that it would have taken to build out something. So, I mean, I, th I think it took down the time it took to, uh, in, well, in attorney reduce, time. Reduce a patent filing or to reduce yeah. a dispute or reduce something. I mean, so our current software broadly takes down the, the amount of time that an inventor would need to talk to an attorney about a provisional patent application to about an hour, down from about 10 to 20. Um, one of the things that we found software to be really, really good at, and this kind of touches on, on Neil's point about mobilizing people over the weekend, is, is that it doesn't really need weekends, um, which is very, very helpful because the problem that you find, especially professional services, is that um, you know it might take you 10 hours to draft a provisional patent application, but those hours are not evenly distributed, and they're normally distributed over weeks or months. Um, and in the US, you, you have now what, what's called first to file. So the US is now a first to file jurisdiction. Um, that is an instant, that basically that means the first person who gets the patent office with the correct format uh, for an application is deemed to have invented it first. And the best example of um, what happens if you get there second is CRISPR, the gene editing technology. Um, so that originally came out of research from UC Berkeley. Um, the Broad Institute here at MIT um, filed first and there was litigation around it, um, and actually MIT ended up getting the patent despite having kind of invented it second. Um, so UC Berkeley is, is, is looking at probably hundreds of millions of dollars in, in licensing losses. Um, that's a problem that could have been solved by using software to, to massively speed up the, the filing process, because that was just a filing issue, um, that they didn't actually get the invention in the correct format. They didn't get it out of the inventor's head into the correct format and get it to the patent office in time. Um, so that's a pretty good example of where technology could have saved the day, but didn't, because yeah. we haven't got to yet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it just seems to me like it's such a combination of both technology to speed things up within the, the game is how it's, how it's played today, and then maybe existing law firms or relationships mm -hmm. in making some phone calls and saying, hey, guys, what the hell happened here? Like, this isn't, you know, this wasn't right. Um, so I always like to ask a few sort of fun questions towards the end of the podcast, and one of them is, we look back in 20 years time and we think today we look back at slavery and think, how would we let that happen? 20 years time, what would we look back on today and think, oh my goodness, I can't believe we were doing things that way or this is what we were doing, you know? 
Um, allowing the continued proliferation of pan trolls in the US, I would say. Um, it's just a massive problem and no one seems motivated to, to fix it. And I think particularly for, for early stage companies, the threat of being sued out of existence by somebody who has no intention of exploiting a patent is pretty shameful. Mm. So I'm, I totally agree with you. I, the one caveat I would put uh, on that is that I think the term patent troll is now slightly misused. Uh, I think that there are a lot of tech companies who will remain nameless but who got where they got on the basis of having intellectual property that they were able to use to exclude others from uh, making that invention, who now don't really care about IP rights because their value is in data now or in network effects or in customer relationships. Is they're very, very happy to call anyone who tries to assert their IP rights a patent troll. Um, Apple, for example, uh, called the University of Wisconsin a patent troll. It's a research institution. Um, so... I think we've got to be very, very careful about whose game we're playing. So there are entities who are seeking to exclusively leverage the fact that there are inefficiencies within patent litigation to try and shake down startups. And that is, I agree, a complete tax on innovation. But if you do have a piece of intellectual property, you should be able to, to enforce your rights, right? Otherwise, what's the, otherwise, what's the point? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so I think, I think, I mean, I totally agree with you that, that, that it is, um, uh, you know, non-practicing entities. One of the issues that you have is that um, because they don't make anything, you can't really counter, you can't really counter sue and you can't get injunctions that, that doesn't hurt them because they're, you know, a piece of paper and a desk in Delaware, probably. Um, but I think one of the things you're going to be quite careful of is not, uh, not allowing incumbents, particularly in the technology sector, to get away with efficient infringement, which is... Um, the kind of the name of the game in Silicon Valley at the moment is just to infringe and, you know, call any startup that's attempting to enforce their patent rights a patent troll, um, even though, you know, you wouldn't do the same thing if, if um, you know, someone were to break into your house. Uh, but it's, it's, a, it's a piece of property, like real estate. Um, and so that's my kind of my one pushback there. I actually think that um, there will be efficiencies in litigation that will, um, I think, probably destroy the problem. Uh, in my view, um, because the issue with the issue with patent trolls in particular is that they're um, buying patents that are, are you know coming towards the end of their term, probably slightly spurious in terms of whether there actually is infringement or not. But the hassle of going through hiring an attorney, going to Texas, although now the venues have changed, going to you know whatever it is the the, the venue for litigation. Um, and suing the patent troll or taking them to the to the patent trials and appeals board um, is so expensive. You just much rather pay the shakedown money, um, and then they do that at scale, and, and that's how they make their margins. If we can massively reduce um, the friction in terms of enforcing, determining infringement, um, you know, automating potentially the licensing piece, um, and you know, thinning out the costs and frictions in litigation, then. Uh, that advantage that patent trolls currently have disappears um, because they're they're just relying on the fact that the system is broken. They're they're a, they're a symptom rather than the disease itself. I'd say. Hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. Very interesting. But I think that brings me to a question that I've always had um, asked of me from startups when they're in the middle of a crisis. They're like, "What do I do? What do I do? I just got to cease and desist, or this person says I've stolen their name." And but it's not nothing like it, or it's close enough. Um, Neil, what is the advice that you generally work? So, if I were a 
a sort of distressed founder saying, Neil, help me out. I'm, I either have a cease and desist, I have a warning, I have a, somebody says I stole their name or whatever. What are the first three things that a founder should do, consider, and how would you help them in solving this problem? Call their lawyer, first and foremost. All right, done. That's, done. that's not even one. That's <laughs> point five. Okay, point five, check. So, one. I mean, I think it depends on the right that's being infringed. So if it's if it's a non-practicing entity, patent troll, whatever it might be, um, see what their litigation history is. See if they actually have a, have a history of, of going after other people in this space. See whether this is a cause of action that you know really what you're dealing with. If it's, if it's somebody who's alleging that you've stolen their name, again, any bit of research, see how they're using that name. Um, are there ways that you can change your name? Are there, are there rights that, as Matt alluded to, that you may have that, that somebody else is infringing where you can actually have a dialogue and try uh, talk about cross-licensing or, or coexistence in a, in a particular space? Um, often there's a, a strategy of doing nothing. I mean, that, that often works quite effectively, certainly with non-practicing entities, your you, patent trolls, you may find that um, they only go after somebody who bites. You know, I've seen I've seen that in the past as well. So is your experience, therefore, in identifying previous behaviors of entities and then also in helping a startup choose which one of those strategies to yeah. play depending on circumstances? Absolutely. So it would seem to me that what you're working on, Matt, is the weapons and what you're working on, Neil, in the future will be how to deal with those weapons in the circumstances. And you and you yeah. require the experience you have to know how to manipulate and choose them and where to leverage them. And Matt, what you're building is how to create more efficiency in in, in preventing those kinds of conflicts, but also yeah. when they happen, how to resolve them quickly. Yeah, and I, I think it's it's kind of the, the distinctions between kind of the medicine and the and the delivery. Um, so what's what what Neil has just described up to the point where a lawyer is having a conversation with the client and explaining, you know, this is the strategy, all that stuff of kind of looking through litigation history, forming quantitative risk analysis based on you know, the size of the claim, uh, you know, the, the number of the number of other um, the number of other patents that they hold, variety of other factors, all that stuff can and, and should and should be automated. Um, the final judgment call, I think, will will remain, you know, the, the delivery will remain with um, with the kind of the bedside manner of the of the attorney. But quite a lot of that computation um, I think will be done by by machine. Okay, so we have a bright future ahead of us. But until next time, bye. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud and leave us a read with your thoughts on our show.